there. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I am a psychotherapist and a professor and a trainer, and I sing in a band on the weekends sometimes here in Chicago. So I really appreciate you joining me for the show. And if you've listened before, you know that I'm, I'm struggling with this marketing thing, but I'm realizing that it's good when I actually tell people I have an Instagram. Our Instagram is at Head Heart Therapy because Head Heart Therapy is the name of the group practice in Chicago that I own. And I've just been, I feel like I just figured Instagram out. I've been sharing a bunch of memes that I find and making my own memes. If you love dogs, my dog Oscar is my meme muse. Oscar the meme muse. <laughs> He'd be so offended. So side note, my husband and I called an animal psychic because my dog has been having some medical issues. And one of the things that she told us, well, first of all, he doesn't like to be called a baby. We were calling him baby dog. And apparently he does not like to be called a baby. And second of all, he and my husband were brothers in another life, which is why he favors my husband over me. So this has nothing to do with anything except that I know that people are fans of Oscar out there. And so I just wanted to give you a little bit more insight into Oscar. And so to know that he's my meme muse, I think he'd be rather displeased by that. <laughs> anyway, let's let's get to the actual meat of the show today because I'm really, really, really excited for this interview. So Today, I interviewed Dr. Lawrence Heller, and if you've listened to the show previously, you've heard me geek out about NARM, Neuroaffective Relational Model, which I'm getting trained in right now, and episode 65. If you like this episode, definitely check that out because that was Brad Kammer, who is the lead trainer for the U.S. for NARM, and Dr. Heller is actually the founder of NARM, and what NARM is is a unified systemic approach for working with developmental issues and shock trauma. Dr. Heller has also been on the faculty of several major universities and has taught courses and seminars at medical schools, hospitals, and pain clinics in the U.S. and Europe. Dr. Heller co-founded the Gestalt Institute of Denver and later the Rocky Mountain Psychotherapy Institute, where he trained hundreds of mental health professionals. And Dr. Heller is also an author of Crash Course, A Self-Healing Guide to Auto-Accident Trauma and Recovery, and Healing Developmental Trauma, How Early Trauma Affects Self-Regulation, Self-Image, and the Capacity for Relationships. And that last book, Healing Developmental Trauma, I'll make sure that we have that linked in the show notes for you uh, to go purchase that book. If you are interested in anything that he says in this interview, you want to get that book. And NARM is a really up and coming model. And I believe that in the years to come, this will be the way that we train people to do therapy because it's absolutely revolutionary. And I'm just, I'm so excited to be part of learning this model and hopefully at some point teaching this model to people on the ground floor because this is going to change the game, y'all. So if you're a therapist or if you're someone who is looking for therapy, you can find more at narmtraining.com. Without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Dr. Lawrence Heller. Hello, Dr. Heller. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Glad to be here. Yay. I got to be honest, I am a little intimidated to do this interview. And I just texted Brad just 30 minutes ago and was like, give me some tips. What do I need to know? And he's like, it's very chill. You're going to be fine. Just be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I know you as the person who developed NARM, and I definitely want to pick your brain about a lot of things around NARM, but I'd really love to hear how you got to where you are now. And obviously, you've been working for a while, so it's probably, there's a lot to share, but whatever you want to share about your journey of being a therapist, working in this field, I would love for you to share with listeners. Well, my path to, to where I am is a little bit different than a lot of people because I actually started off in the earliest years in the what was called at the time the human potential movement, which mm-hmm. was a, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a really exciting time where at that point there were only a couple of modalities out there. There was a kind of behaviorism that was even before cognitive behavioral. Mm-hmm. And then there was psychoanalysis and then there was just a, you know, some kind of psychoanalytically or psychodynamically informed talk therapy. And then there was all these new things in the 70s. So the Gestalt was, was mm-hmm. relatively new, bioenergetics. And actually, that was my entry. I was in Boulder, Colorado, and I went to a demo of somebody was doing Gestalt therapy there. And really, almost immediately, I was hooked. It's like, okay, this is interesting to me. I really like this, and I want to do more of it. And then there were other things that were getting going. Again, I date myself, but mm-hmm. there were encounter groups. They were relatively new in, in mm-hmm. that part of the 70s. And I did that. And then here was a situation where people were talking about feelings. And, you know, it wasn't completely unheard of in my family, but we were kind of like a middle American family. We mm-hmm. talking about feelings was just not a regular part of our conversations. And I, again, I found myself just really being drawn by the fact that it was more personal, it felt deeper, more connected. Mm-hmm. And so that was my original draw. And then I did some of my own work in kind of in gestalt and bioenergetics. And then we decided this was, again, earlier times when things were different. And after a few years of getting trained and doing therapy myself and all of these other things in gestalt bioenergetics, we decided to open up the Gestalt Institute of Denver, mm-hmm. which we did. And it was amazing in terms of right out of the door, all of our trainings were full because mm-hmm. everybody was really hungry for something different than what was going on in the culture at the time. And we had a chief psychiatrist from one of the big mental hospitals. We had a bunch of psychologists and we were not at that point <laughs> later that came, all this stuff came later was licensure and stuff. But at that point, none of us was licensed. Hmm. That was the way it was in the human potential movement back then in the early days. And so it wasn't until like uh, seven or eight years later that I really wanted to get more professional on my back and got a hmm. PhD and so on in, in clinical psych. And so got some of the traditional understanding and more understanding of kind of psychopathology and exposure to other orientations like object relations work and ego psychology and things that have been useful and that are ultimately integrated into the NARM work. But the very first orientation was really to a somatically based psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Both Gestalt and, and bioenergetics in, that, in those times were, you know, both bodily based. Right. And this seemed really essential to me. It seemed really important. And in the many years that have gone in between, I've seen some many of the limitations of those kind of progressive and cathartic work that isn't part of NOM in these days. Right. But still, I got exposed to Wilhelm Reich's work, and I thought he was a genius. Hmm. He was the very first Westerner to bring the body into the psychotherapeutic narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was the teacher of Alexander Rowland. He wasn't my major teacher, but I spent a little bit of time with him and then other people who were teaching these things. 
So Reich was really the grandfather of all of the Western-based somatic psychotherapies. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lineage there. And the work that I've been developing over the last 25 or 30 years is, is quite different. But some of the concepts are still valid and even were ahead of where other people were at the time. Because, yes, for example, yes. Reich talked about organismic self-regulation. He was mm. the very first person to talk about self-regulation. So one thing led to another, and then I was looking for a more gentle approach, and I saw that some people were actually injured by some of this cathartic work. It wasn't helpful for a lot of people. Some right. people did okay. Some people actually were helped by it, but it was a hit or miss kind of thing, and particularly for people with the earliest trauma, I saw these people getting re-traumatized by this cathartic work. Yeah. Also, as I did my studies and came to understand psychopathology and, and some of the other more traditional approaches that were out there, that started influencing me. And then step by step, I just kind of worked with both the successes and the failures of the different therapists that I experienced back in those days. And tried to take the best out of the various approaches that I had been exposed to. It included a significant commitment into a certain branch of spiritual work, which is not part of my work anymore, but that also had an impact on, on how I understand identity and work with identity and arms. So it's really uh, drawing on my story and my history and then seeing what worked more effectively with others. And having now been doing psychotherapy for over 40 years, I've learned to get a clear understanding of what's really helpful for people mm -hmm. and what's not. So that in NARM, I really wanted to take away the pathologizing quality that even the non-traditional approaches had. Right. I started seeing these are not pathologies. And then I started changing the names from what in the old days they talked about as character structures. And I talked about them as adaptive survival styles. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get away from thinking of these things as monolithic structures and to look at not the pathology of them. If you called somebody in the old days in bioenergetics that was schizoid, oral, mm. masochistic, psychopathic, and right. rigid. And, and none of these names were useful. And the thinking and the work behind it also didn't fit where I was going. And so I started by depathologizing it, mm -hmm. the psychotherapy process. I then started by looking at not just people's difficulties, but what their strengths were. And this, again, I got a little bit from Gestalt, but you know, working more in the here and now mm -hmm. and not going on what I now call archaeological expeditions. Mm. It is, you know, into the past. It's, of course, as you've seen, the past comes up spontaneously, and then yes, of course we work with it. But we don't just go rooting around hoping that we're going to find answers in a person's past. We have a very specific protocol, as you undoubtedly experience. You know, we have four pillars in our. We start with what the client wants, and then we begin self-inquiry, and we start inquiring, and what are the symptoms right now? Mm -hmm. And then, again, I think partly as a result of, well, many different kinds of works, I started seeing the limitations of being goal-oriented, you know, mm. and that if you believe all that you know where you need to end up, you've already limited the inquiry that you're going to do into the difficulties that you're, you're dealing with. And, of course, most mm -hmm. people come to therapy because they have some kind of difficulties, uh, mm -hmm. you know, various. Well, and to kind of go back to the early days, 
Am I correct that you spent time in Esalen? Did you meet a lot of these folks in that circle? Not for the, I did go to Esalen later, but not in the early years. And then even, you know, in more recent years, maybe 10 years ago, I was asked to teach at Esalen. So Mm -hmm. I've been Mm -hmm. back, but there were certainly people who had been exposed to some of the Esalen culture. And Esalen had been around for a few years and it was also in process of developing. But But I did get exposed to some of the early Gestalt therapists, for example, that part of what we did with our institute is that we would bring in all of these well-known people from the West Coast, from the East Coast, from Cleveland. So we had Virginia Satir and we had Mm -hmm. Stella Resnick and Stella, as far as I know, is still around and still going strong. And and some of the early pioneers in Gestalt, the people who were immediately following after Fritz Perls, mm-hmm. he was already dead by the time I got into Gestalt, so I never mm-hmm. got a chance to meet him. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say that Aslan itself had such a big impact on me, but they were also sure. part of the human potential. Movement. Yeah, and I just read this book called Selfie by Will Storr. Have you heard of this book? No, I haven't, actually. It's fascinating. He's a reporter, a journalist, actually. And the book is essentially about our culture of perfectionism and how it's really hurting us. And he starts the book by talking about the increase in suicide and then trying to draw a line from the early Greeks and Romans to now. And and part of what he goes through is the human potential movement and what happened at Esalen and what went right and what went wrong. And like you said, these catharsis uh, hurting people. And and he tells stories of many people who committed suicide after having experiences like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd really love to. Well, let me tell you my experience of NARM and see how you can make sense of this for me, because I'm obviously I've only done module one. I'm at early stages in my journey. But NARM, it's filled in the gaps for what I've been looking for professionally for myself. And personally, I'm having this experience when I'm in sessions and when I was learning the module that there's now something in my brain that's like pushing outward and expanding my brain. And there's no language for it yet. (laughs) Is that a physical experience? It feels like restructuring of the ego is what it feels like. That's the that's the best language I can put around it. It's not a physical sensation, but more of a a sense of expansion happening. And it's glorious. (laughs) I'm so excited (laughs) by it. Well, the sense of expansion is what people tend to experience as they work through old identifications you know, in other words, old ideas about themselves. But when I use identifications, I'm not just talking mental. I'm talking, for me, identifications are psychobiological dynamics. Mm -hmm. And these old ideas of ourselves are held in the body in the form of tension and collapse. Mm -hmm. So as we come out of these narrow and very tight kinds of identifications, it's very common that people feel a number of things. One is they tend to feel more in their heart, more in their bodies, but they also feel an expansion, an actual physical and energetic and and sometimes Mm -hmm. emotional expansion. That may be what you're referring to. Of course, anytime there's learning at the level that goes on in in the NARM work, there are new neural pathways that are being created and other kinds of things. So I don't know if that has anything to do with your experience, but certainly the expansion piece is something I'm very familiar with. And I see it almost in every session that somebody feels either expanded or they feel clearer or their visual field is expanded. Various kinds of elements like that come up all the time. Right. 
And what I witnessed at the training that I tried, I tried to get Brad to put some language around it, but I, I think we probably need to do some more research to figure out what's happening. But I'm an avid meditator. I've been meditating every day for three and a half years now. And the shift that I found in myself was this ability to then the conscious observer was really present and very aware and very on board. And what I felt like I saw happen through the training every time somebody would do a demo was that conscious observer would get online. And I, <laughs> part of me was like, what? you don't have to meditate to get to the state? Like, that's incredible. Because <laughs> I just heard people describing that. And is that the adult consciousness that we talk about in NARM? That is what we talk about. And to, just to be precise, because some people out there obviously don't know about NARM, I talk about the embodied adult consciousness, which is mm -hmm. really important that it's, mm -hmm. it's not just a mental process. It's not just right. a cognitive process. It's embodied. And the more identified you are, the more strongly stuck you are in an identification, the narrower is, is your world yeah. and, and the way you see yourself and the way you see others. And then there was another question in there. I may have missed it. Go back and remind me what your question was. Uh, Lord knows. Sometimes I just say a bunch of things and then hope people catch uh -huh. whatever was important in that. So <laughs> oh, it, was about, it was about this observing adult. Yeah, yeah, yes, on. yes. The, the yeah. conscious observer. Yeah. Mm hmm. Right. And that's exactly what happens. It's like in some meditative traditions, it's called the witness and, mm -hmm. you know, others just talk about it as being or consciousness. But it is true that what is there as we come out of these old structures, these psychobiological structures, there is more capacity to be present, to be in your body, to be mm -hmm. witness, to be less identified with all of the things that we take so seriously. So on that level, it's not a surprise that you're finding specifically that there is a common ground between meditation practice mm -hmm. and the work that we do. And many states of being open up in the trainings, as hopefully you've experienced, mm -hmm. you know, that as people share and as people do significant workings in front of the group and so on, people's heart opens, there's an expansion that happens, and it's palpable. And for those people who've done, you know, spiritual work, the, many can recognize it, that there is some kind of state of being that does tend to open up in the group and mm -hmm. it's palpable and powerful. It's so powerful. And Brad was commenting on our group in particular. He's like, oh, usually there's more of a struggle in module one because we're asking you to kind of move away from what you've known. But in our group, I think everyone was really tapping into what a big deal this work is. I believe this is a divine download. And I hope that feels like a compliment to you because... My hope is that in hopefully it would be sooner, but more likely like in 20, 30 years, this is how we're going to be trained as therapists, because this feels like all of the missing pieces where we continue to bump up to this developmental trauma with clients. And I have yet to find a model that really gives agency back to the client where the client can actually use it. Because I've trained in sensory motor psychotherapy and I really liked it. But there was a part of me that was like, I can't just give this back to the client because they still don't know what to do with it. But the magic of NARM is that the client doesn't need to know what to do with it. The truth just arises. I think that's right. And it has to do with the whole first pillar, you know, where, where mm -hmm. we do the contracting piece. And in NARM, there is an implicit understanding that we're already connected, mm. but in order to survive and as a, an adaptation to developmental trauma, we've learned to disconnect right. in a variety of ways. 
So in NARM, the focus is what are the various ways that we've learned to disconnect as we work through the, the various ways that we run from ourselves, disconnect from ourselves. Our deeper nature is already there. It's never not been there. Right. It's just been the conscious awareness of these deeper states mm-hmm. is, has not been available to us, but it becomes available to us when we clear out the obstacles. And I had somebody point out to me some years ago that one of the things that Rumi said, and I can only paraphrase because I don't mm-hmm. remember the exact quote, but he said, for those people out there who don't know Rumi, he's a famous Sufi mm-hmm. uh, poet and mystic. philosopher. From, yeah. Uh, yeah, mystic from about a thousand years ago. But he said, basically, and he has, in his own much more poetic words, he said something like, don't go looking for love. Look at the obstacles within yourself mm-hmm. to experiencing love. And I wasn't consciously making that connection there. I said it was pointed out later, but that is the orientation that I'm coming from. We're looking, we're exploring in a non-oriented way the various things, the various elements that we've learned and taken on that get in the way of the deep connection that we all want. And since I'm on that topic of connection, let me share with you and the listeners the original title of my most recent book. Yes. The current title is Healing Developmental Trauma, as probably many people know. Mm-hmm. But the original title was Connection, Our Deepest Desire and Greatest Fear. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. That's an adaptation to developmental trauma is that we yes. disconnect from the world and from our emotions and from our body in order to protect ourselves. We always hunger to be reconnected. But as part of our adaptation to difficult situations, we developed all these obstacles that get in the way of that deep connection that we all see. Mm-hmm. And so in NARM, we're looking at what are the obstacles? And that's a specific part of the second pillar, which is the body-based inquiry that we do in NARM. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about this idea of, you know, we have everything we need and we're trying to look at the things that get in the way of connection. For me, that sounds so Buddhist, right? The idea that we have Buddha nature, that we have the diamond inside of us that just needs to be uncovered. I told you in the email, I'd really love to talk about the spiritual underpinnings of NARM, how you came to understand these things. And and it sounds like you said you've moved away from a particular practice, but whatever you want to share around your spiritual understanding and how that relates to NARM. And I do try to make clear in the book that I draw from non-Western traditions. And Mm -hmm. the Buddhist tradition is a very significant tradition, obviously. And it's part of what sometimes people call the perennial philosophy, the kind of the deep understanding that's there explicitly or implicitly in different traditions. And recently I had the privilege really to do a presentation for that was sponsored by the Sufi community in the Bay Area. Hmm. And that one was called Beyond Identifications. And so the question is, who are we when we're not all of these things that we've taken ourselves to be? Right. And my, that our deepest nature is not static. There hmm. isn't a true self that we can point to and say, this right. is the authentic yeah. Sarah, this is the right. authentic Larry. But it has more to do with a certain kind of deep connection and a kind of a flow and a kind of an aliveness. That's, again, you've seen the distortions of the life force chart that comes out of some of that understanding. That as we look at and understand the obstacles, again, from a very compassionate place, which is consistent with the Buddhist tradition and other spiritual traditions, is that we're bringing compassion to these dynamics. Yes. And there's a difference in our in that, and this is what I tried to communicate about two weeks ago in this group that was sponsored by the Sufis, is that at the same time that we're doing this exploration is that, as you know, that 
all of these unconscious and often very early dynamics of the child's need to protect the attachment relationship. Mm-hmm. And we develop this so-called, what in spiritual traditions are called the false self, which right. I don't use that word because it's too pathologizing. Right. But I talk about the adaptive self. Yeah. We develop this adaptive self in order to try and hold on to this attachment relationship, which for an infant is essential as the air that uh, he or she breathes. Mm-hmm. And so when this isn't recognized in spiritual work, then often right. I think there's a different kind of pathologizing that, that goes on. So it's not uncommon in different traditions that people are called lazy because they're yes. not doing their meditation. And I said this up at the conference. I said, I don't see it as laziness for the most part. I think what it is is that people are afraid. Yes. That hasn't been really recognized. So yes. when people sit down to meditate, for example, there's two things that tend to happen. One is that their mind is racing and they're so full of thoughts and they Mm -hmm. can't stop their mind. You can't stop your mind, but you can work with it. And the other thing that happens is that people fall asleep. Right. So it's either a hyper arousal state or a hypo arousal state. They're Mm -hmm. either sympathetically overactivated or parasympathetically overactivated. Mm -hmm. And what's driving this overactivation in both aspects of the nervous system are all these unresolved emotional issues. So I think that to pair this kind of emotional developmental work with mindfulness and heartfulness and compassion gives us more tools to work with the various difficulties that come up when people meditate. You know, I've consulted for spiritual groups because as, as you may know, and certainly many of your listeners probably have experienced, Many people going on a silent retreat, even for as short as three days, and it's even stronger if it's it's seven days, they can get into panic attacks, all kinds of things start coming up. Yeah. Because one of the ways that we run from ourselves is through motor activity and constant thinking and planning and futurizing and all these Mm -hmm. elements. And so when you sit quietly, and particularly in silent retreats, all of the emotional material starts to surface. Mm-hmm. And it's my experience that to just sit and observe it is not usually enough for most people. Yeah, We can work from both directions, from developing a mindfulness or a meditative practice can be very, very helpful. But then we need the understanding that is also inherent in our, which is what are the various obstacles? What is the nature of the various emotional, psychological, developmental obstacles that get in the way of us being able to meditate, which means get in the way of us being present to ourselves and to other people in the world? Right. And that's one of my frustrations with a lot of self-help work and even some therapies that are, you know, pretty... I don't know, more tools based is that it's more of a band-aid instead of getting to what's actually getting in the way. One thing that has been crystallizing for me is I'm, you know, the conversations with the wounded healer is, is the title of this podcast. And so I've been doing more talks on wellness and, and self-care for therapists. And what I see coming up over and over again is if I guide you to try to develop your self-care plan, someone's going to say, well, I want to do meal prep every week. And I try to rewind people and say, OK, if you wanted to really meal prep every week, you'd be doing it. So let's talk about what it is that's getting in the way of doing that and then figure out how can we take small steps to actually move you towards your goal rather than just making this lofty goal that you're going to shame yourself because you can't do it, (laughs) you know? But you just said sounds very garnish. Right. Which is, I think, why I'm so excited about it, because it's already the way that I've been conceptualizing the work. But this just put it all in a nice little package right in my hot little hand. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and I'd like to add one thing. I thought what you said about, you know, that it's very tool-oriented, mm-hmm. that those can be useful at times. But mm-hmm. what I see even more problematical is that the tendency is to be very symptom-oriented. Yeah, and just right. trying to fix the right. symptom without focusing on what it is that's actually driving these various symptoms that people experience. Mm-hmm. That's where I take a different direction. Because we listen to symptoms, of course, and, and the clients for the symptoms for the clients are very important. But we want to know what is the message in the symptom? Right. What is it that our bodies or our emotions are trying to tell us when we're constantly tight or constantly sad or constantly depressed? Mm-hmm. These are things that we want to understand. What is it exactly that is driving these dynamics? Exactly. Exactly. You're singing my song. I just I love this so much. I'd love to to talk about shame because I saw Brene Brown speak in 2009 and that really spoke to me because it finally gave a name to the thing that I'd been dealing with my whole life, but I didn't have a name for. And uh-huh. so I got you know certified in her work and I've been doing this for a while, but I continued to kind of come up against this bump in the road where I have found that empathy, great, that is an antidote to shame, but self-compassion really seemed to be the piece that was that was missing. And I would bump up against in myself and in clients, the willingness and not a conscious willingness, but the subconscious and the unconscious blocks that would get in the way of practicing that self-compassion to then do the healing work. And I think NARM is the answer to this. So I'd love to talk about the way you see shame and NARM. Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't know Brene Brown's work, but because I've been teaching about shame for over 20 years myself, Mm -hmm. her name has come up repeatedly. I don't know. So I don't know exactly what it is that she does. I'll fill you in some other time. (laughs) Okay. But my next book is on shame and guilt. The title is, we're actually finished with the book. We're just polishing it up right now. So that Oh, I'm so excited. That's the next book out. It's actually, we wrote it in German and then we're going to train wow. and it's being published first in German and that's due in October, the, the, the German draft. I'll have my okay. brother read it and translate it to me. <laughs> okay. So it'll be, it'll be out in German in about six months and it'll probably be closer to 10 months in English. Wow. But really understanding the dynamics of shame have been a particular interest to me for a long time. Mm-hmm. And compassion and mindfulness are useful first steps. But as you were describing, they don't take you all the way. Right. And, you know, just having done the, the very first module, mm-hmm. but I trace the development of shame back to a very specific juncture in a person's development. Mm-hmm. And That has to do with the need to protect the attachment relationship and what is traditionally called in psychodynamic and psychoanalytic thinking as splitting, where the child, in order to protect the image of the parent, actually creates two images of the good mother and the bad mother, the good father and the bad father, and also the self-image, the good self and the bad self. Mm -hmm. And so it's just the way a child's mind works. I've said for many, many years that a child cannot experience him or herself as a good person in a bad situation. Right. The beginnings of shame have to do with the distress and the environmental failure that we experience as children that we think it's our fault. Again, just to make it, put it in very simple language, a child, if they're not experiencing the love in the various ways that parents communicate love to the child, if they're not experiencing it, they cannot say, there must be something wrong with my parents' capacity to love because I know I'm a very lovable person and they just don't seem to see it. 
what we do, what every child does, and this is the roots of shame, every child says, what's wrong with me? I'm not lovable in a variety of ways that children come up with that conclusion. It may be because I'm not the way I look or the way I perform or fail to perform or real or imagined defects in how I look. All of these things, they start becoming these shame-based identifications mm-hmm. that really, and for me, and the way I look at personality in general, shame is at the core of what we take to be our personality, what we take to be our identity. So our identity is based on very shaky foundation. Absolutely. Yeah, all of that. (laughs) And painful, because as everybody knows, the experience of shame is a painful place to be. And I love in NARM the differentiation between shame-based identification and pride-based identification because I see that so much with with either people who recognize and endorse the shame and the pain and the trauma that they've experienced or people who deny it. And that tends to present as that pride-based identification. You know, I work primarily in addiction and Brad and I just had this conversation this morning that that's kind of the bifurcation of how I see the presentation of people that I tend to work with. And my gift out of my childhood trauma is I'm able to see your authentic needs and your authentic self, whether you are connected to it or not. And so how can I get someone to, I guess, open to that truth, that inner truth that they might be denying because it's just too painful? And I feel like, again, like NARM does that. It bypasses the prefrontal cortex's like, no, this can't be right. Because like you said, the splitting, right? I can't be an alcoholic and be a good person at the same time. That's just not possible. So I'm just not an alcoholic. That's exactly right. And what we don't want to get into the trap is being goal-oriented. It's like we don't have to Mm -hmm. try and get somebody anywhere. But we have to look at all the shame that if if there's these pride-based counter-identifications We have to work with those, but at the same time, helping people see that the pride-based counter-identification, which is a kind of a defense, Mm -hmm. is just as unreal as the shame-based identification that that it's trying to avoid. And Mm -hmm. so we're holding that both of those are fictions. It makes it easier because if you take away the pride-based counter-identification, which some therapies do, you can just actually leave a person in more pain. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes. You're not challenging the shame-based identifications in, you know, mm-hmm. relating to what you and I were just talking about. It's a fiction that it's the only understanding that a child can develop that there's something wrong with them yes. when there is significant failure in their environment. But it's still, it's a fiction that we carry forward into our adult lives. Right. Kelly Klinger is my therapist. And that's exactly what we were working on yesterday is this feeling of because of my childhood experiences, this feeling of of having to perform and having to be a certain thing in order to be worthy of love. And that's what's just so profoundly amazing about the experience in therapy is that it lifts momentarily. And Kelly and I were talking about this expansion contraction and, and how the hope is, and I know we're trying not to be goal oriented, but at the same time, we want to get better, right? So the goal is each time we have an expansion and contraction that the expansion is more expanded and the contraction is less contracted to create space for the adult consciousness to be more and more online. We certainly hold that as the likely outcome of the inquiry that we do. And instead of trying, we trust that as the Mm -hmm. various distortions that we've taken on on all levels of our experience get clarified and are exposed to the light of the adult consciousness, that we can see, of course, 
just because the fact that somebody didn't love you doesn't mean you're not right. lovable. And, and many, right. many adults still subscribe to that belief. Yes. But for the child, there was no other way to think about it. And so as the adult mm-hmm. consciousness comes online, we can see through those fictions of our early childhood. And I don't mean that in right. an uncompassionate way. It's right. just that that was the only conclusion that we could draw is that there was basically something wrong with us. Right. Exactly. And this is a lofty question, but I'm curious your thoughts on it. Do you think that anyone doesn't have developmental trauma? I really can't think of anyone in my life that doesn't. <laughs> no, I mean, I would say, is anybody free of developmental issues? No, yeah, I right. don't think so. Yeah, no, that's a good distinction. Life on this planet is a challenge. So right. And even if we had perfect attunement from our parents, which is unlikely, mm-hmm. but even if we did, it may not even be the optimal thing for us. I'm not saying consciously or purposefully inflict misattunement on on children. There's enough that goes on all the time anyway. But I think everybody has the capacity for increasing self-knowledge, increasing presence, Mm -hmm. increasing connection Mm -hmm. to self and others, whether we call it trauma. For some people, it's definitely falls in the category of trauma. For other people, it may be less severe, depending on how we use the term trauma. But it's, I see it as universal human phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at the history of the planet, wars, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty much nonstop for much of history. And it's been a challenging place for us as human beings to live on. And of course, there are elements of that that get passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so how can anybody be completely free of all that unless maybe they have achieved enlightenment and they're invented a category all of it. (laughs) Right, right. I'm definitely not there yet. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, an email you'd mentioned that you're not comfortable with the word healer and wounded healer. Wounded, right, right. Well, part of why I asked that question is I hear you have a linguistics background and that's why you're so particular about language. And I'm very particular about language, too. And one of the really interesting things about asking that question is finding out what does that term actually mean to you? Because it seems to mean something different to everyone. So if you don't mind sharing, you know, what about that doesn't feel like it fits for you? I'm curious. Let's take both words. Yeah. Let's just start with the simpler one. Let's talk about healer. Mm -hmm. Because we have a certain knowledge and a certain expertise. If you want to call us healers, uh, you know, okay, I wouldn't use that word because it gives us too much power. Too much power, Because really, the spontaneous movement, as you've seen again and again, it's in the book and it's in the training. The spontaneous movement is towards health and connection. Right. And what we do as part of our support, call us healers or something else, is we're there with an educated way of helping people explore the obstacles. But we're not healing anybody. Healing comes from within. So I don't want to take the responsibility of being a healer. That sounds like I'm doing something to you. And this is a collaborative effort in that. So there's that piece. And then the word wound and wounding and wounded comes up. And as you undoubtedly have heard is that I tend to use verbs rather than nouns. And Mm. so I don't believe that there's such a thing as a wound that just exists in a static place. Right. It's a process. And I want to keep focusing on that process. It makes sense. And that's what you shared is pretty much what everyone shares when there is this kind of push away from the word healer and wound as well. And and I think what I continue to come to over and over that to be someone who is an effective and inspiring therapist, we have to know 
our wounds or know, you know, the traumas that we've experienced and be able to use them as information rather than working from them or denying them. Again, kind of this shame-based versus pride-based identifications. Well, in that context, I completely agree with you. Yeah. It's like the most important thing. As therapists, we need to learn techniques and understanding, but mm-hmm. our own personal work is essential. Absolutely. And that's my hope is to continue to inspire people to do that through the podcast and whatever else I get to do. So that's my plan. And I doubt that you've gotten there yet, but I'm sure you will in terms of there's a whole section in the norm teaching about countertransference where we look specifically at basically the therapist's patterns Mm. and their countertransference and how that affects the therapeutic process. So if one of your strategies has to become a caretaker, for example, Mm -hmm. and many therapists, that is part of their pattern, Mm -hmm. then they can become compulsive caretakers, Mm -hmm. which then has a negative impact on the therapeutic process. And we go through step-by-step with the various kinds of countertransference dynamics that people experience. And, and it's so important for us. And, you know, this is consistent with what you said. It's so important for us as therapists to recognize those patterns in ourselves. Absolutely. I truthfully identify most with the autonomy survival style. So I'm sure I'm going to be weeping in the next module when we really dig into that. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing and I, I want to respect your time. Thank it's you. such a pleasure. And I, I will be with you in the master's training at some point. So I really look forward to deepening this work for myself and for others. And I told Brad, I'm already in. I'm going to be shouting this from the rooftops. And I tend to be a Pied Piper and get people to follow me around to do these things. So hopefully we get tons of people to sign up for the training because this is this is pretty incredible. Well, thanks for your support. It's been great to talk with you today. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Heller. Sounds pretty amazing, right? Like it's so deep. I've been getting therapy in this modality and it's, it is just the deepest work that I have ever come across. So like I said before, if you are interested in finding out more about this, Google NARM, you'll find tons of things. There aren't a lot of therapists that are doing this work right now, but you'll find somebody who you're able to connect with. And I love to talk about it. So feel free to reach out to me to talk about it. Thank you as always to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find out more about Dr. Heller, you can go to www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast, and we'll have all the information there and in the show notes. So thanks again for joining us. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.